episode 20 of Writers' Festival Radio. As always, we are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review Writers' Festival Radio, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. We can't do it without you. In this episode, we'll hear a conversation between playwright, novelist, and screenwriter Emma Donahue and editor and author Lenny Goodings. Lenny's first foray as an author is A Bite of the Apple, A Life with Books, Writers, and Virago. Part memoir, part literary history, and part reflection on more than 40 years of feminist publishing, A Bite of the Apple is a story of idealism and pragmatism, solidarity and individual ambition, of challenges met and the battles not yet won, and above all, a steadfast celebration of the making and reading of books. One of the things that makes this conversation so unique is that Lenny was Emma's editor on a number of books, and we get an editor's perspective on stepping onto the center stage rather than working behind the scenes. Here's their conversation. It's my great pleasure to introduce Lenny Goodings and her extraordinary new memoir, A Bite of the Apple, A Life with Books, Writers and Virago. Um, born in Canada and um, living in Britain, Lenny is an extraordinary editor who has been um, at Virago since 1979, but under many different headings. And um, I personally owe her a great debt of gratitude as my editor for four of my books in the 2000s. So I couldn't be happier to be talking to you today, Lenny. Oh, thank you, Emma. Yes, I remember very fondly our time together. And lovely, lovely editing work. Yeah, it was good. Slammerkin was, was my, one of my all-time favorite novels of yours that we were proudly publishing. Thank you. I was checking what the kids call my ego shelf, um, which is all my books and, and things I've contributed to. And I was checking, and it, it was four books in seven years. Two of them books were short stories, which I'm particularly grateful for, because I think the average reader doesn't know how hard it can be to get publishers to, to accept collections of short stories. Um, but also something that struck me was that I've had many editors over the years, but they haven't all really edited me. It's not something that every editor does. Some people just buy the book and say, lovely dear, or they might let your American editor, editor edit you. But you really were one of the, the serious formative editors who, who taught me to write better. So I'm vividly grateful. Thank you. Well, it's nice. You know what? It's easy to edit somebody with a great talent. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Thank you. But I remember also, I, you, you were savvy about how to sell the book, which you can't really separate from making the book better. Like many of your interventions, you couldn't call them strictly editorial, because they were things like, um, I think the one that's standing out for me is, is the title of Slammerkin. Um, so, you know, I, I brought that novel to you with a grim title. I believe it was called The Complaint of the Crows. It was about an, an 18th century murder and it ended with an execution. And really, I, <laughs> I was not doing a good job of selling it. And you said, oh, no, we need some delicious word to do with clothing because the girl is a dressmaker. And I said, OK. And I looked through my I sat there on some lovely hotel sofa with you looking through my list of clothing vocabulary. And there was a word slammerkin that meant a loose dress and a loose woman. And you said, oh, slammerkin. And I said, don't be ridiculous. Nobody in the world knows what the word means. And you said, it doesn't matter. 
<laughs> I just thought that was a stroke of commercial genius. Uh, I, you know what? I think I think we that was the best title for the book. But I, when I remember taking it to the sales department and they said, oh, my God, what is that? And I said, <laughs> you know what? It's totally fine. It's going to be, you know, it's obvious. It's true. Nobody knows what the word means, but it, the meaning is in the in the sound of it in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. Slamican. Yeah. It sounds, sounds slightly delicious. And, yeah, and delicious, that... but also a little illicit somehow too. So I, I just knew it was going to be okay. And then we put that wonderful dress on, red dress, slightly dirty red dress on the That's front. That's right. Good um, cleavage, I recall too. And I had always thought as a feminist that I wouldn't ever have a book cover with a bodice on it, you know. But when you sent it to me, I thought, well, that works, you know. So I think, and I remember being surprised when I heard that you'd come from publicity into editorial. I know, in fact, you're not the only one at all. At the time, I was a bit disconcerted by that, but then I soon realized that it meant that you, you cared so passionately about the book that you paid a great deal of attention to how to get it to those readers. Yeah, but I think that is what publishing's about, isn't it? I think, you know, I think of publish, as being a publisher as the ultimate and sort of midwife, as it were. You know, your first job is to get the, the best out of an author, you know, understand their vision, and then try and get that vision, help them get that vision down on the page. And then the next stage indeed is, you know, publishing is getting it to the world. Publishing and marketing, they may well be sort of synonymous in some ways, but I think marketing, marketing is when you're really talking to the, to the people, but also to the audiences and readers. But it's also thinking about what the book looks like, what it sounds like, what it um, smells like almost. And that's... Um, all those things, those signals, and the, it takes quite a lot of careful thinking, I think. And you're also in tune with what is fashionable in some ways, too, and kind of what, are, what other jackets are working. You want to sort of put a nod, to, have a nod to that, but actually push it out further all the time, too. It's, it's quite a, it, it's a, an interesting um, exercise, intellectual exercise, as well as artistic. And that actually is why I love publishing. You know, it's, it's the clash between the commerce and the art is really gives me a, a great thrill. Yeah. And I remember you as much more decisive in your um, suggestions than, me, than many of my other, other editors have been. Um, you know, just very good kind of big picture suggestions. The first chapter of my novel was set in London and all the rest of it was in a very dreary part of the Welsh borders. And you were like, give us more London. You know, <laughs> so I went home and wrote two more chapters set in London because I was, you know, quite intimidated by you, the kind of big city glamour of you, you know? And um, I remember also then with a book of short stories, I had, they were all based on historical sources, this woman who gave birth to rabbits. And I had um, tucked all the historical sources away at the end thinking, oh, only academics will care about this stuff. And you said, everyone wants to know whether the person really died, you know? So let's put those notes sort of unashamedly right after each story. So there was somehow a kind of confidence about these suggestions of yours that makes the editing process really stand out in my memory. Oh, I'm very flattered. Thank you very much. <laughs> I can't remember all those details, but that's, um, it's very good. Thank you. I mean, you know, no writer wants to be kind of overruled, but um, if, if the suggestions from an editor are, you know, really confident ones, um, they really can win us over and it, it never feels like being hammered. No, well, I mean, honestly, I think that's really important, actually. My view as an editor is that it's, you know, it's not your book, it's the author's book. That's the key thing. And as I said earlier, you know, the main thing is to sort of understand their vision and then try and help them get that vision on the page. Because often the vision 
sits in, in an author's head, doesn't it? I know Linda Grant has this wonderful line, Linda Grant, a novelist who I've been publishing for a while. And she says, you know, your original vision of a novel is like a mirage, like shimmering on the horizon. And, you know, you have to be really careful in, as an editor, I think, not to smash that. And, you know, and to, to also to, to get to put in ideas and to um, edit too soon is another thing I think is quite key, actually, because sometimes I read an early manuscript and I think, oh, I know this is not quite right here. But I also know that to, to be really in full create, creative mode, you cannot have too many. Um, first of all, you can have, can't have too many opinions, but also you can't have too many negative thoughts. It feels to me, you know, you let somebody get to the end before you start putting in some of your um, worries. That's very interesting. That's very sort of tactful. I mean, I, I certainly, I never show my novels unfinished. It's as if, yeah, I have to try and sort of get my dream down on paper first before I let any of you in. Oh, I think that's really important. I think you can, and also, you know, sometimes people say, I want to talk to you. And I think, mm -mm, you mustn't talk because you can, you can spend your idea. You know, it, it just, that then goes up in smoke, doesn't it? It's how it is on the page is the key thing always. And, you know, um, since those days, I, I, I've been writing quite a lot in film and TV, and I'm so aware by contrast that in the world of fiction, you know, our words are taken so seriously and respectfully by our editors. You know, even the most forceful editor will always say how to make your book better. And the film and TV world, you know, even though I've had good experiences, a writer is really just one contributor. You know, there's, there's nothing like the autonomy of, of writing a novel. So I, I appreciate the book world so much. It's it's because we're the sort of, I mean, you know, we spawn many things. You're such a good example, spawning from room into, you know, the movie. But I think to begin with, the book is fairly is a fairly low key, low budget um, product or enterprise, don't you think? I mean, it is yeah. often, as you say, it's a very intimate one. You know, you get, you might have the marketing people think about what the cover looks like, what the title is. You might have, you know, you have the finance people saying how much you can give an advance for that book, etc. But when it comes to the text, it's a very um, intense relationship just between the author and the editor. And that is, of course, what I love about that, about our industry, too, actually. It isn't, you don't have, probably because of not a lot is riding on it at the beginning, um, you know, you don't have a lot of different opinions. And also because it's very labor intensive, isn't it? Nobody else besides the editor and the author. Yeah, you're, you're right about that intimacy. There's a lovely moment in The Bite of the Apple when um, I think you've just won um, Editor and Imprint of the Year in 2010, and there's a dinner party for you and a number of your authors. And rather than going, oh, this is wonderful, you actually describe feeling slightly awkward that suddenly it's sort of as if all your, all your lovers are there at once. You know, these are people you're used to having. <laughs> it was really like that, actually. <laughs> all, yeah. all the lovers in the room at the same time. <laughs> this is not good, because the other thing, the other thing you're doing as an editor, I think, is when you're working intensely with that author. That is the only author in the world. You know, it's it is that that. Um, yeah, it's again. I keep coming back to the word intimacy. I think it is such an intimate thing, actually. And also, you become, you know, you you're part of the enterprise by then too, isn't it? You know, this is kind of a. You're an advocate for the author, but you're also, you know, it's a bit of a love affair with the author and, and their book, too. You know, it is very, it's quite emotional, I think. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're emphasizing this because nowadays people tend to talk so much as if, you know, the writer is creative and as if publishers are 
you know, it's like these sinister figures mm. who are just trying to make money from it. And of course, the whole thing has to be creative mm. or, you know, the, the chain will break down, the creativity will be lost, there'll be a crack in it if any one of you is, is cynical in your motives. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I would say to that is that ultimately I do think it is the author's book. So I feel like my job as editor is to say very, very honestly what I feel when I feel they're ready for that kind of criticism or praise. Um, and then and then to say, this is how it's coming across. I mean, this is especially true in memoir, when you can say, look, you know, you're coming across as kind of an awful person here. Is that okay? <laughs> and the, if the person says, yes, I'm really fine with that, then um, you leave it alone. You know, you're, it feels to me your job as editor is sort of hyper reader and, you know, to bring all skepticism and all kind of, uh, you know, antennae to bear. And then I feel it's the author's book. You know, if they don't want to um, change, then ultimately that is their that is their choice, it feels to me. You know, we're not the movie industry in that respect. You know, it, it ultimately it's your name on the book. It's just the funny thing I've found now that my name's on the book. I've had this funny thing, which is, that I've always felt with my authors that I've gone right out into the world with them. I've held their hand. I've been behind them and thinking about it and taking the blows and the, and the bouquets all, all with them. And now I see when you do publish a book, ultimately it is just your name on the book, isn't it? And you know, you have, you have this strong team, but the team is behind you. You're the one out the front. And that has been quite, um, quite a new feeling for me. And all the more so with memoir, right? Mm. I've never published a memoir. It must be very exposing. I'm, I, I love the idea that you, as an editor, might ask a memoirist, you know, are you all right with sounding really unlikable here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. But you have to, you know, that's why I put in, in um, um, A Bite of the Apple. I, that's why I put in uncomfortable moments too, and kind of moments where, and you know, particularly around feminism, when I really, I had to learn things, especially as a white feminist. Um, I had to learn things. And sometimes, you know, I've said before that I wish that the lessons were private. Some of them were very public. And um, yeah, that's, I wanted to put that in the memoir too, though. I thought I can't, um, it's not a story, something like an enterprise like Virago, you know, which is in, to begin with was up against the grain um, and is about feminism and how women's books are received in the world. Obviously, it's going to have a lot of tensions, isn't it? Yeah, and you're very good on the, the self-consciousness of the whole enterprise that you were always in the spotlight as a sort of test case for publishing books about women and, you know, having to prove that Virago was necessary and relevant and that it was all things to all women, you know, um, in a way that no other publisher would. You know, there are a lot of feminist publishers. There were a lot of feminist publishers, a lot of radical publishers in the 70s and 80s, um, and very few of them are around still. Um, one, I mean, one of our feelings always was is to come from the idea, publish from the idea that we were not niche publishers. You know, for one thing, women represent 52% of the population. But secondly, our view was is that, you know, we, we were always, and I continue to do this, is challenging what is the default position. And the default position is the male view of the world, which we wrongly, in my view, and I'm sure in yours too, call universal or, you know, neutral. I mean, because I've been thinking a lot about the fact, you know, we say, we never say male novelist, for example, or male memoirist. We, just, we always just say novelist, memoir. And then we know when, when we hear that, that we are referring to male, most often a white male, whereas you have, you know, indigenous novels, gay novels, 
gay novelists, uh, women novelists, etc. You know, there's always a qualifying thing if it's not the male universal approach to the world. And I've been having a new thought about this is rather than saying we've got to get rid of woman novelists, um, indigenous novelists, whatever, I was thinking we should just re we should introduce the idea of male novelist so that if we said male novelist, you know, you'd have the same understanding that 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 is the point of view that it's representing. Yeah, yeah, let, yes. let, let them wear a label too. Yes, indeed. So, okay, how, how you could have written a memoir at any point even. I mean, there's so much drama in this. Um, you know, even after, say, the first 10 years in Virago, there's so much drama, and you're in no sense finished. So why a memoir right now? I mean, the really honest and short answer to that question is because somebody asked me to. <laughs> and in fact, an, an editor at OUP, in, my book is published by OUP, Oxford University Press, in, um, in America and in Britain and in Canada. It's published by Biblioasis, this fabulous, feisty little publisher who I think are great. Um, but the, it was originally commissioned by um, Jacqueline Norton at OUP and I kept bumping into her at things and she we sat together once and had a very good conversation about publishing and about the dynamics of publishing good books into a commercial market feminist books into a commercial market ideas into a commercial market and I said to her that is what I really love the idealistic publisher is really appeals to me you know you could be an idealistic librarian if you want or something or a teacher but actually what I Love is the extra frisson of trying to get this into the marketplace, trying to change the marketplace, and also trying to demonstrate that there is a market out there that's not being satisfied. So Jacqueline said to me, oh, that sounds good book. Why don't you write it? And I said, oh, my God, I'm not writing a book. Um, and then every time I bumped into her for a couple of years, and every year she would say to me, are you sure you don't want to write that book? And so I thought, <laughs> oh, you know what? You are that kind of editor that I like to think of myself. Is once I've got an idea that I want someone to do something, I just gently get, go at them until they finally collapse and agree. Um, so it was, it was her asking. And then once I started, uh, then I realized I do have something to say. I've been in publishing for 40 years. And when I came into publishing compared to now, it's really changed. And I wanted to set the story of Virago against the feminist movement, which has also really changed and ebbed and flowed. And so it just seemed to me, it seemed to be a good time that, you know, it's good four decades. It, you know, it's a it, it's a long time. So many of those, you know, cultural battles nowadays about you know authentic own voices and mm. the collective versus the individual, the political versus the literary. All these questions have been coming up since the start. And um, I was fascinated to watch this series, Mrs. America, recently, which dramatizes nineteen mm. seventies feminism. And you know, I, I was just edge of my seat listening to their their various um, arguments because they're all so relevant today. I know, same stories. And that's why I think, you know, one of the things that when Carmen Khalil um, founded Braga, one of the things she said is, I d you know, we're going to publish women's history. We're going to tell women's stories. Sometimes we're going to tell stories that people didn't think were worth publishing. Sometimes we're going to uncover hidden histories. And one of the reasons we want to do it is that so the next generation of women doesn't have to come along and do it all over again. And you know, we still have quite a lot of that, don't we? I mean, you're absolutely right. Watching Mrs. America made you realize, oh, my God, so many of these battles are are, are old ones. And, you know, I mean, even I read a book about um, 
Winifred Holtby wrote about a period, mm. Winifred Holtby, a novelist, uh, South Riding, her most famous one, and she wrote about women after the First World War, and it was the same thing. And if you also look at suffrage and suffragettes and suffrages, you know, the, 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 the tension in the way we are going to imagine a new world is very, always very fraught, it feels to me. And yeah, and it's, you it's know, a wave it's a, motion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and when you're in it, it feels dire, frankly. But, you know, when you can give a little bit of perspective on it, you can sort of see, oh, I see, it. there's tension because it matters. And because, you know, we all have different ideas how to make change, don't we? When, when you describe starting at Virago in 1979, you say, you know, it's this tiny little office and you're all having to make the lunches and so on. And then you describe this small toilet where each of you, if you needed to, would go and cry. <laughs> so it was a workplace where everything mattered. Yeah, I know it did matter. And I think... I mean, what I what I also what I was I talk about in I in the in the book too is that, you know, we still haven't got over the idea that when women battle each other or fight each other, even you know, to call it it's it, you know that it, it quickly degenerates. The representation of that quickly degenerates into cat fight, and sort of there's this sort of, you know, slightly sort of purient. And you know, whereas if you've got another boardroom bust ups with all men, or you know, even you know any kind of male or, or male and female arguments they don't get sort of they don't get put into categories that are very um derogatory really and i i wanted to call attention to that too they get called gladiatorial you know yeah. or battles yes. and you know and it's seen as the stuff of, of thrilling business fighting right. yeah other than whereas i feel you know, you know as soon as you get women who are arguing about things naturally you would you know, you get the feeling that it's kind of like scratching each other's eyes out. You know what I mean? It's kind of very basic. But although yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Margaret Atwood had, you have, had that wonderful line. We, there was a Virago documentary and um, Margaret Atwood was naturally, because she's one, one of our stalwarts since the very beginning, was interviewed. And she said, in my experience, the smaller the cheese, the fiercer the mice. <laughs> and I think it's true at the beginning of these kind of movements, you know, the cheese in some ways is small, you know, we, we want it to be a, a bigger story, but to begin with it's, um, you know, it's a very, it's a fierce battle on the way things will be, will be gone. It's, it's a particularly left wing thing. It seems to me though, you know, it's not just um, women it's not just feminists who have those kind of arguments. No, no, you're right. In progressive movements, there's this wish to be to be good and to be approved of and yeah. to be transparent and all these things that that the right don't worry about. Yeah. That's so I can see I can see one reason you felt able to say yes to to Jacqueline's request for a memoir is that you clearly both have sharp memories, but also very good uh, records. Like you were able to fish out your application letter, your slightly funny and pompous application letter for a job to Virago way back when. Are you just a meticulous records keeper? No, hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Never kept a diary, which I'm so angry about now. Um, so no, I had to, I mean, I, I had that letter. That is true. And Funny enough, in the middle of my, when I was writing, my mother suddenly turned up with letters I'd written her. Um, so I was oh. able, so that was great. Because you know, one of the things I was thinking, it's very interesting, you can sort of access certain feelings, can't you? I mean, sorry, you can access certain memories. So I remember the early days of crying in the loo and things like that. And I could just say that. I have no emotion attached to that now. I can say I cried in the loo. I remember that. But when my mother turned up these letters, I could then read my actual sentences to my mother saying, oh, my God, this is really awful hard. 
hard work. Um, and so yeah. I was able to give it that veracity that I didn't. I, I just, you know, then I had the emotion again too. But mainly I looked through old catalogs. I looked through books that we had. You know, I reread Adrian Rich. Oh my God, she's wonderful. Wow. I reread her um, to sort of get the feeling of the, what it was like in the early, um, early times of the feminist movement. Yeah, I relied on a lot of literature, to be honest. Not, not mine, I have to tell you, no. That's interesting. And I'm sure that elicited memories. It definitely does, doesn't it? You know, if you get a little kernel of something, and you know, Proust, Madeleine is not um, um, a cliche for nothing, is it? You get a little kernel of something and it does. And if you sit with it, and also if you sit with it and you write about it, that was the other thing I discovered. You know, it's back to, you know, how do you write versus speaking? When I found like if I sat down and I could remember thinking about, you know, the office room, for example, I could suddenly see in my mind's eye, I could see what color the, the, um, skirting boards where I could see what was on the notice board, you know, which I just wouldn't have been able to conjure up, you know. It's also, it's giving yourself over to it, I feel, and yeah, finding. Yeah. Yes, and, and I love that line that Marilyn Robinson says, you know, I find when I write, I find stories within myself that I didn't even know I had, you know, and I, that's what I found. I found certain memories, not all right, of course, you know, I don't mean I got everything, couldn't remember everything, and sometimes I had dates wrong and stuff, but I could capture the, some of the feelings just by sitting with them and sinking down into them. Gosh. And um, who edited this book and how was that for you? <laughs> and how was that for them too? Were they intimidated? Oh, and I don't think she was intimidated, no. Um, she, yeah, my editor, Jacqueline Norton, did most, she did most of the editing. Dan Wells at Biblioasis also wrote me a wonderful letter. Very, very thoughtful. Um, in fact, he was really, he really pushed me to push myself more into the story because one of the conflicts I had, you know, I'm talking about all these tensions, tensions in publishing, tensions in feminism, tensions in office, politics, etc. But one of the tensions I felt too was it wasn't just my story. You know, a hundred women mm. had worked at Virago. I wasn't a founder. I'm that's, you know, very near. I only came four years or so after it was founded. So I've been there a long time, but I didn't found it. Um, Four, you know, hundred women have worked with us. We published something like four thousand books, one thousand authors. So I was very conscious of, you know, it's it's so much. This story belongs to so many of us. So how do you tell a story that you're part of, but you're not the, you know, central story? Like if you're own, doing your own life, wouldn't you? Obviously, you're the star of the show. I'm not the star of this show. I'm one of the stars of this show, or in this great, great sort of um, gallery, and. Um, I found that quite difficult to force myself into it. And it was Dan who said, no, you've got to own this a bit more. And, that, you know, that was good. It's the kind of thing I would say as an editor too, actually. You know, you yeah. have, you have yeah. to think, you have to go after, after thinking about how to represent it as best you can and as truthful as you can. You then obviously have to think about the reader and the reader doesn't need something apologetic or, you know, shilly-shallying. The reader needs somebody who's there. You know, I have to be then the camera, as it were. I have to be the yeah, one. Yeah, and you can't pretend to be the collective voice of feminism. No. Um, no. In fact, you're, you, you know, one of the really strong themes that, that holds your whole book together, all those different anecdotes, is that tension between the collective and the individual. Mm. Um, I was astonished by, uh, you mentioned Susan Brown Miller publishing her, her classic book, Against Our Will, about rape, and that at, at events, the occasional 
person in the audience used to say, why didn't you publish this with, without your name on it? Why didn't you, you know, shed ego? Because this is just the insights of our collective movement, isn't it? And Susan Brandmiller is saying, sister, which page did you write? <laughs> I know. I, felt, I found that she did an interview um, just as I was starting the book. We didn't actually publish her, I have to say, sadly. It, um, Against Our Will is an important book, but not, we, not published by us. It was before Virago started, I think. Um, but we, um, yeah, when I read that, I just, I roared with laughter. Yes, tell me which page did you write, sister? And I thought, boy, she just nailed it, you know. But, but you could see the, you know, what, what turns up with feminism, and I'm sure you found this too, Emma, actually, is that, you know, when you write a book that other people love and it starts taking off, you become a, a star, don't you? You're a star now. And how you deal with that against the feeling that, not even that women are supposed to be modest, et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, putting your head above the parapet, standing out higher than other, other people and higher other than women, it's, it's an uncomfortable position for us as women often. And, and yet- That's true. It, and, and women in interviews, we, we very often say things like, oh, I've been so lucky. You know, exactly. and then you read interviews with your male peers and they're not claiming they were lucky. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, you know, we still, I'm afraid we haven't got rid of that feeling um, that to be modest, to, you know, to, to have other people praise you is better. And yet to be an author, you have to own the center ground. You know, you have to own it. You have to own your ground, as it were, not the center ground. You have to own your own space. And it, that's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not comfortable for all of us, actually. So in the early days of feminism, that that was really, especially, I I think, really tough, you know, that some, because people like Susie Orbach and Susan Brown Miller, Marilyn French, you know, these women, um, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, they became stars. And that, because the media, of course, wants a figurehead. Um, some of these people wrote great books, Adrian Rich would be another one. Um, so even perhaps unwillingly they became stars. And then they, you know, are they representing the movement? Are they representing themselves? You know, these were, these are interesting conversations and I think they still go on today. Yeah. You know, I'm grateful though, as a writer of fictions, I've never felt obliged to sort of be a, a spokeswoman for a movement. Whereas I imagine if you're writing, say a book about rape or something, you might feel a bit more of that, that weight on your shoulders. But really, I don't think novelists can ever be asked to straightforwardly represent you know? No, I don't. I think that's true. But I do think, first of all, I do think that novels can be as true as nonfiction. So I don't, I, you know, that sort of divide between where you find your truth. I don't mean you're telling exactly truthful story, but you, you are representing truthful feelings, emotional feelings that are true. Um, I think you can get that. But also, I think, you know, your writing Sarah Waters is writing, Jeanette Winterson's writing. I think actually, you know, you're carrying another banner for gay women, gay and lesbian women. Um, I think those things are really important in fiction too. I think you, whether you like those labels or not, um, they do come your way. Do you not find? It's true. I, like I never mind if somebody points out that that my books have some political effect, but it's almost like I can't be too aware of that while I'm writing them where I would feel, you know, self-conscious and constrained or obliged to twist my plots one way or another. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for, for all these books to be in a way part of a movement so long as you don't, you know, you don't feel obliged to write it one particular way. Um, no, I think that's right. And also, I mean, what would be 
you know, some people would sometimes say to me, tell me what is a feminist novel? And, you know, I think, I don't know what a feminist novel is, to be honest, because I think if if it is an out, out, you know, our sort of idea of what is feminism, it would not be a very good novel, to be honest, because it would be propaganda. That is not a novel. You know, a novel is about all the kind of, ambiguities we have as human beings and we are not straightforward are we no it's true (laughs) you know we don't fit the bill and we don't fit into pigeonholes and that's you know that is why one loves novels of course well i think one of the things a bite of the apple gets so right is the balance between the celebratory and the not so much the critical as the you know the honesty about the bad times and i found all the sort of office politics stuff fascinating because I've never had, you know, a a job in a group like that. And so, you know, so many of the arguments aren't just like, oh, we squabbled in 1983, but it's, we squabbled about this key issue that still matters today. You know, these, these decisions um, about in particular, how crucial it is to stay independent and how crucial it is to make money and how crucial it is to, to keep paying the our staff rather than let them go. I mean, you've, you've had, you know, a share in, in agonizing times of change at Virago. It's been through so many changes. And of course, many publishers have, but in the case of Virago, it always, you know, had, a, had an extra significance because it seemed to be this test case for the women's movement. Yeah, that's right. And, and when, at one point when um, we had, uh, when we had to sell ourselves, when we decided to sell ourselves, you know, because one of the things you've just touched on there is as a publishing house, you're no good if you don't stay in business. You know, it is a feminist business. It's a feminist, um, we're publishing feminist books or books by women anyway. Um, but, you know, there's no point being um, right if you're, if you're not in print, you know, if you don't stay alive. Mm-hmm. So, you're at, you know, another attention is within sort of, poly, within you know, politics and profit, you know, how you, how you manage those things, how you make compromises. And, but when we decided that um, we couldn't, we didn't have enough capital to keep ourselves going and the world had changed. It was the end of the netbook agreement in the UK. Feminism had shifted. Um, The Waterstones, who we'd been a big chain store in, in Britain that we were very dependent on also changed. A whole lot of things all came together at the same time. And we had to make some people redundant and then we decided we would sell ourselves. And the press said, this is the end of feminism. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, excuse me, no. It's just a publishing house that um, is now, or a small business that has found, uh, you know, you need capital and we're now working out a new way to have that. So we sold ourselves to Little Brown, uh, Little Brown Book Group in the UK in 1995. And here we still are, you know, we, that was the decision we took. Here we still are. It's a good publishing house for us because they very much honor us, leave us alone. We publish what we want. We have editorial independence, and yet we have the might um, of a big big house behind us. You know, it was a good move. Could have been a bad move. I'm not saying, you know, it was, it was entirely obvious that it wouldn't be, but um, it was good for us. But yes, we, any kind of move that you make when you're a high-profile women's organization always casts... Um, you know, good or bad uh, light on all women's groups for some reason or other. And it's kind of maddening, but there you are. Yeah. I think because I only started publishing in the 90s, you know, it seemed self-evident then that you would want a feminist book to be commercially successful. You reach more people and, you know, you you make it possible for the writer to earn her living. So, I'm, you know, there were moments in your book that 
left me flabbergasted, this notion that, you know, ego was impure, this kind of, you know, mm. pseudo-Buddhist feminism. So, for instance, you quote a 1971 um, very smart essay by Joe Friedman, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, which says basically that feminist groups that claim not to have any leaders, it's actually just a way of masking power. I mean, some, someone has to be actually running things. And if you all pretend you're in some egalitarian utopia, either the, the thing doesn't get done or else the, real, the person who really has the power is, is not admitting to having the power. And I thought that was such mm. a smart observation. Yeah, wasn't it though? I mean, that really, that really helped me actually, because that, that was before I went to Virago. I was working in a cooperative called Writers and Readers Publishing Cooperative. And, you know, I was very young, very new to Britain. Um, I'd only left Canada the year before and I was really, I was a bit out of my, I was very out of my depth in terms of sort of cooperative theory and all that sort of thing. But yeah, and that's what I kept thinking, well, wait a minute, we're all supposed to be equal, but we're not. <laughs> you know, This is definitely not true. And I think, I mean, you saying you haven't worked in an office. Um, you know, so many of us do. Most people work in offices, don't they? And that, that was one of the things I wanted to do with this book, actually, is obviously it's a particular kind of office, a particular kind of industry, it's a particular kind of books. But so many of us spend most of our days in offices. And I wanted to write a book that talked about our working life, you know, that, you're, that I was leading on the idea of work and also the joy of work, the deep, deep pleasure of publishing for me. But the deep pleasure of being with other people, bringing you know creative voices like yours to a wider marketplace is 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 what I wanted to do. So though I've put in, as you saw, you know I was breastfeeding when um, Michelle Roberts um, was shortlisted for the Booker. I had to go home and finish breastfeeding, then run to the <laughs> to the Booker dinner in a um, you know post baby body, which so did not fit in the dress. Yeah, <laughs> and halfway through the ceremony, I could feel oh. I could feel this all the milk leaking yeah, out of me yeah. as well. Everything is so I put that in because I wanted to, you know, obviously I have two children. I'm married. I wanted to sort of show that as my context, but what I wanted to lead on was was work. And that's you know, it's a work memoir in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a sort of gripping industrial thriller at times, you know. Um, <laughs> I like and, and I was amazed that in the early days, Virago was ever criticized for like the books being so beautiful and for, mm. you know, making a success of some authors. I mean, these just seem like obvious goods to me. Um, and yeah, well, see, I don't know, though, that that's entirely past. I still think there's a sort of slight, there's a feeling slight of slightly being sacred about, you know, feminism or literature. And I think that's probably fine when you're in the universities or something, but you know, when you're in the world where you're trying to help an author be successful, you're trying to keep alive yourself. Um, you're trying to pay your people properly. You know, that's, it's, you know, you have to make a decision where the compromise lies lie, but you definitely have to make compromises and get your hands dirty. You know, it's not a, you're in the marketplace. It's, and as I said earlier, what I want is, what we all wanted was to change the marketplace and show the marketplace to be a different place. But nevertheless, it is the marketplace and you have to sell your books the way other people sell their books. And, and one thing I like about the book is that those moments of compromise, they're not kind of, you know, safe, low energy moments. They're actually, you know, risky moments. Like, yes, what will happen mm -hmm. to us if we are bought out, you know? Mm. Um, um, and, and the sheer confidence of uh, the, the, the ambition of other moments, like you describe a, a book launch, 
I'm forgetting which one it is, but basically you, you, you ran a 24 hour event, you handed out 8,000 leaflets. I mean, it was a huge yes. cultural event, not just a book launch. Yes, I mean, that was, it was called Over Our Dead Bodies, yeah. Women Against the Bomb, edited by Dorothy Thompson. And, you know, I, I put that in as an example of two things. One is how, um, how close we are as a publishing house to the, all the issues of women's lives. And in that case, it was the peace movement. Well, it's still around, isn't it? Um, but that was very connected to CND, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And we had a group, too, called the Book, Books Against um, the Bomb as well. But yes, so we, the book represented so much of what was going on in the world for women. But then we decided to hold a rally. You're absolutely right. I mean, when I look back, that does seem quite crazy, frankly. We held a rally to launch that book. And we gave and we gave the profits, such as they were, to the peace movement. Yeah, I know. We, it was very That was a splendid right. kind of crazy. Listen, we could go on all day. I noticed most of my questions yeah. have been from the start of the book, only because there's so much to say about every bit of it. But I know we're running out of time. I would love to finish by asking you one way in which... Virago nowadays has changed and, and, and basically tell me one of the ways it's changed that delights you. That delights me. Well, I think the, the main way that it delights me is that we're still here and we're still publishing relevant books and we're still um, representing women from the, you know, one of the ideas always from the beginning was to bring the marginal voices to the center mm -hmm. and make 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 them interesting and relevant to the mainstream. And I think we're still doing that. The thing that I also think is kind of wonderful is in, there were some pretty um, slightly dry years of feminism. And I think what I'm loving is the way that young women are rising up now again, the hashtag Me Too movement, et cetera, and, and saying it's not okay that we still haven't got what we, what we want, we, you know, which is respect and equality. And I love that about this generation. And I like also that they can laugh. I mean, some of our, some of our books recently, um, The Guilty Feminist, for example, by Deborah Francis White, is a very funny book about how, you know, we keep trying, but we, damn it, we keep failing. We're not quite like Maya Angelou yet, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> I like the, the fact that um, maybe it's not as earnest as the earlier days. I think that's probably, that's probably good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this has been just splendid, Lenny. Thank you so much. Um, for anyone listening, Lenny's, Lenny Gooding's memoir is A Bite of the Apple, A Life with Books, Writers, and Virago, and it is a page turner. So thank you so much, oh, Lenny. Thank you, Emma. So lovely to talk to you. Thank you. That was Emma Donahue in conversation with Lenny Goodings. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org. And all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books. And wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. The next installment of Writers' Festival Radio appears on Remembrance Day. It's called Fighting for Peace and features Tim Cook and Scott Anderson. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>